How far are we from the end of the world? A thousand years? 10,000? Or is it much closer to, say, 50 years? Some of the smartest scientists in the world say we're much closer than many of us think. Today, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists moves the hands of the doomsday clock. It is 100 seconds to midnight. The doomsday clock has been a well-known piece of popular culture since its inception in the 1940s. It is a symbolic representation of how close leading scientists believe humanity is to destroying itself. And this year, it was moved closer to midnight than ever before. What we have called the new abnormal last year, a dismal state of affairs in the realms of nuclear security and climate change, now has become an apparently enduring, disturbing reality in which things are not getting better. Nuclear security and climate change. Scientists say these are the biggest threats to civilization, combined with an era of alternative facts and misinformation. The continued use in 2019 of untruths, exaggerations, and misrepresentations by world leaders in response to what they deem fake news has made worse an already dangerous situation. According to the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, the organization that sets the clock, catastrophe is upon us. So my organization looks at man-made threats to our existence. That's Rachel Bronson, the president and CEO of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which is housed at the University of Chicago. She says that while the clock may be just a metaphor, understanding the thinking behind that metaphor is a matter of life and death for everyone. We are fast moving into a period where all the rules, certainly on nuclear issues, but in climate as well and broader disruptive tech, are either falling away or, in the case of disruptive tech, not really even yet created. And it's very reminiscent to 1953 in many ways, a global architecture that doesn't exist in terms of cooperation between countries, lack of trust between countries, at a moment where the issues are compounding each other. From the University of Chicago, this is Big Brains, a podcast about pioneering research and pivotal breakthroughs that are reshaping our world. Today, how we got to 100 seconds to midnight, what the doomsday clock means, and what it would take to move it backwards. I'm your host, Paul Rand. Since its inception, the doomsday clock has symbolically measured our time till certain destruction in minutes. This year, for the first time, the measurement was made in seconds. The closest it had been to midnight was two minutes to midnight, where we moved it in 2018, and we held it there in 2019. And it was the closest it had been to midnight since 1953, when it was also two minutes to midnight, and it's when the U.S. and the Soviets had... Cold War. That's right. And right in the beginnings of the Cold War, Uh so when the U.S. and the Soviets had exploded hydrogen bombs. And we've been slowly moving the clock closer to midnight. This year, it moved 20 seconds closer to midnight. With the fear of complete annihilation on the line, you might have the same question I had. Why 20 seconds closer exactly? Why not 10 or 30? What does this time really mean? So why 20 seconds? It's a really great question. So the doomsday clock is set by the Science and Security Board of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. And it's a judgment. There is not some computer somewhere where we feed all of these different facts in and a time pops up. The clock is a metaphor. And 
we answer the question, are we safer or at greater risk this year compared to last year and this year compared to all the years we've said it? Is humanity safer or at greater risk? And what time best conveys the message that we're trying to get out there? And that 20 seconds, we really went back and forth is if we moved to 10 seconds, well, it seemed more important. So it, mm. there, it's, it's, it's really a judgment and and. That's where they got to this sense of 20 seconds, 20 seconds closer, yeah. You know, it's interesting. As I think through potential analogies on this, we're not all that far off from the Super Bowl this year. And you know, when you get in between the one-yard line, you almost assume it's a fait accompli that you're going to get into the end zone, right? Here we are really darn close. Mm-hmm. If I applied the same analogy, mm-hmm. you just assume you're that close, it doesn't take much to push it over. Is that how you guys think about this? Yeah, and the analogy is is a, is a really good one for that reason and another one. It's both on where we are in the one-yard line, but the other analogy that's appropriate, I think, is we're within the two-minute warning. Mm. Any football fan knows there's one game that's played like up until the two-minute warning, especially when you're in the fourth quarter, Everything changes. The intensity changes. Mm. The play calling changes. And a lot happens in that two minutes. We're kind of in that two-minute warning, which is this is just a different game where we are Uh, now. And it really requires our attention. And there is a moment where we can change the course of history, and that's not often true with these kinds of issues. So if this is the end game, what does it look like? How will we know when we've crossed the line into midnight? So midnight was really easy to define when it was limited to nuclear issues. In truth, midnight was a exchange of nuclear weapons. That's what drove the creation of the clock, right? right? It was really going to be the end of humanity as we knew it. Right. That's very easy when you're talking about a nuclear exchange. Minutes, it's all over. We've been really lucky that there really ha- that there hasn't been a strategic Truly. exchange. There's been so many near misses. This government has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. So many accidents. A newly disclosed document reveals a U.S. hydrogen bomb almost detonated near Goldsboro, North Carolina, back in 1961. The so-called Damascus accident involved a Titan II intercontinental ballistic missile mishap at a launch complex outside Damascus, Arkansas. But we have been really lucky, and we're now moving in the wrong direction. For people who grew up after the constant warnings and dread of the Cold War, the threat of nuclear war may seem benign, an ever-present issue, but not pressing or escalating. Are we really closer to nuclear war today, even closer than during the Cold War? A few days ago, but within the week, the U.S. deployed its first low-yield nuclear weapon in a long time onto a nuclear-powered submarine that also has other strategic weapons. On Capitol Hill, House Armed Services Committee Chairman Adam Smith said, quote, this destabilizing deployment further increases the potential for miscalculation during a crisis. And when I say low yield, and this is important because you see this from time to time in the paper, it can mean as big as a Hiroshima-Nagasaki-like bomb or a half as much. Okay. It is still 
devastating. Multiple times the explosive force of the biggest bomb we have in our arsenal. And we've tended to try to walk away from these kinds of weapons because they have the risk of being felt to be usable. Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Ryabkov responded by saying, quote, this reflects the fact that the United States is actually lowering the nuclear threshold and that they're conceding the possibility of them waging a limited nuclear war and winning this war. This is extremely alarming, he said. So we've just deployed this weapon within the week. A, a, a year from yesterday, so in just slightly less than a year, the last remaining arms control agreement, new start that exists between the U.S. and the Russians will expire. Uh, the Russians want to extend it. We, we, the United States, have shown no interest in extending it. We're, many of us are calling for an extension. And so the last remaining arms control agreement that helps us verify what the Russians have, help us, helps with the transparency on understanding what their forces are, all that, that goes out the window. It has caps on what we can produce, that goes out the window. So we've, we're losing our arms control architecture, we're losing the transparency, we're deploying new weapons. In the United States, our nuclear posture review actually widens the issues to which we would respond, could respond with a nuclear response. So. There is so much changing. Basically, the infrastructure we put in place to protect us from a nuclear war is crumbling. The Trump administration has ended several major arms control deals. It pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, is threatening to withdraw from the Open Skies Treaty, negotiations with North Korea have stalled, and the new START treaty with Russia is set to expire. And we've just authorized basically $1.3 trillion over 30 years to refurbish and refresh and renew in some ways our nuclear arsenal. Every major nuclear power is operating and making decisions as if the use of nuclear weapons is easier or more likely. And so this is a moment where we can actually change that course because in 10 years, these are all gonna be set in stone. And, and that's why going back to our doomsday clock on the nuclear side, there's a belief that we're, it, it's like we're in 1953 again. As if the threat of nuclear apocalypse wasn't enough, when bulletin scientists made their announcement in January, they cited another major global threat in their reasoning. That's after the break. If you're listening to Big Brains, there's a good chance you consider yourself a lifelong learner. However, you may not know about the University of Chicago's Graham School and its focus on continuing liberal and professional studies. For more than a century, Graham has been a destination for lifelong learners. They offer courses online and in the classroom, bringing the transformative education U Chicago is known for to students of all ages. To learn more about the courses, certificates, and degrees, visit graham.uchicago.edu. The mandate of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists is to track global threats that could lead to humanity's ultimate destruction. In the recent decade, that mandate has pushed them to move beyond just nuclear war to focus on another growing threat. To test the limits of Earth's habitable temperature is madness. It's a madness akin to the nuclear madness that is again threatening the world. That threat is climate change. Despite these devastating warnings, and although some governments are echoing many scientists' use of the term climate emergency, their policies are hardly commensurate to an emergency. 
A UN report was released underscoring what was already well known. The pledges to curb greenhouse gases that governments committed to pursue by 2030 under the Paris Climate Agreement, they would need to be scaled up eightfold to be consistent with the agreed aim of keeping warming well below two degrees. We added climate to the clock in 2007. But what does midnight for climate look like? It's much harder to have a kind of before and after midnight clear sense of what that means. That being said, this metaphor is important because for the climate folks, there are tipping points that you can't come back from. And you won't feel those effects until years out, but it'll be very difficult if, if even possible to recover from. And that sense of before and after mm. for the climate experts, they, they still talk in those terms. It's just that we won't feel that for some decades. It's particularly interesting to note that there's actually a point where nuclear power and climate change meet with important implications for both issues. Nuclear power right now is so desperately needed in terms of energy in this carbon-constrained environment that we're in. Right. Right? We desperately need nuclear power because it doesn't emit carbon. But at the same time, we've been unable to fully manage its risks. The public doesn't trust it. Right. Right. We're worried about terrorism. We're worried about accidents. We're worried about meltdowns. Well, if we could manage those risks, we'd have this really unhindered energy source. But we are worried about those risks. And so we're not using nuclear power to its fullest advantage, mm. which is exactly the kinds of issues that we are really interested in, because good policies should be able to help us get there. We just right. haven't been able to develop the political architecture or apparatus to make us feel safe. What's fascinating is that Sweden has found ways to kind of bury their nuclear waste, whereas here in the United States, we still can't figure out what to do with our nuclear power plants and what to do with their, their waste. And we're shutting down nuclear power plants that you know could be operating because they're not cost effective right now, but they're also not emitting carbon. So right now, we are in a fight to keep open nuclear power plants that have been decently regulated, safe in the United States just for the sake of, because we don't like them. And it's so disruptive to our energy transformation. We need a bridge to all these renewables, and we need to find ways to power our economy at a moment where battery storage doesn't allow us to fully harness the power of, of other renewables. I do worry about that. I do worry about when there's not kind of a strategic view on how are we going to get to this energy transformation that we need because nobody thinks at the moment that uh, solar and wind alone is going to do it. So are, are there other potential categories or a bit beyond nuclear war and climate change that you could see creeping into this? Yeah, absolutely. Around 2007, when climate gets introduced into the clock, we were also really focused on biothreats. And mm. the board was really grappling with and what do you mean pandemics. By you know, pandemics. Okay. So, you know, we're talking about coronavirus right now, right? But for my organization, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, they're really interested in can these be created in labs? And what if they're mm. used as as weapons to wipe out humanity? Should we be thinking of biothreats in, in that way? The experts are saying, oh, I don't 
know that we have this under control anymore. The technology has changed so quickly. Mm. We're actually concerned about where this is going, how this might be used. Like things like genetic engineering. Right. How should we, like if we think about threats to our existence, like what does it mean to be human and what are the threats to humanity? The advancements in CRISPR and genetic engineering, Mm -hmm. the future of artificial intelligence, all of this are really kind of fascinating to us. And this goes back to our founders. This is actually about political action. Science is moving really quickly. And it's going to bring huge benefits, but only if we can manage its risks. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists was established after World War II as a way to not only warn the public about these risks, but also to offer solutions and push politicians to enact them. And those solutions after the break. Capitalism is the engine of prosperity. Actually, it sows the seeds of its own demise. Could both be right? I'm Kate Waldock from Georgetown University. And I'm Luigi Zingales from the University of Chicago. We're the hosts of Capitalism, a podcast about what's working in capitalism today. And most importantly, what isn't. We're going to share the sort of irreverent banter you'd hear between economists at a bar. That is, if economists were to go to a bar. Subscribe to Capitalism. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Are there any trends the Bolton has seen in the last year that suggest that maybe in the future we could turn the hands of the clock backward, away from midnight? We do point out a, a bright spot, and, and that's in the climate space. And our experts really talked about this, about, you know, is this something we would move the clock away from, from midnight? On the climate space, what our experts recognized was there is a growing global awareness that we are changing our climate and there's things that we can and need to do, especially among the youth, the kind of youth movements that are embracing climate. Groups of students across America say they will skip class tomorrow for the first national school strike over climate change. Is leading to not enough political action, but you're seeing it be introduced into the public sphere. The young people are starting to understand your betrayal. The eyes of all future generations are upon you. And if you choose to fail us, I say we will never forgive you. We believe that that kind of on the street, marching, sitting outside parliaments and missing school to do so, the kinds of large numbers that we're seeing who are owning this issue and putting pressure on their leaders to try to engage is very promising. So all that's to say is public engagement still really matters. And so in the client space, that kind of awareness of the the role and power that they have, even though it seems very out of reach, is actually very powerful. You know, we'd love to see the United States re-engage in the Paris agreements around climate We'd love to see the U.S. sitting down with the Russians and if not extending New START, which we'd love to see them extend just to buy us some breathing room. But then what substitutes for these arms control agreements that have fallen away? The only thing that's going to move the politicians is if we all kind of tell them that we care about these issues. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the, the politicians because here we are moving into election season. Mm-hmm. And, and if you were going to sit down and say to the presidential candidates, 
I need answers on these topics, and we really think that for the American public to make a determination on who ought to be president, you need to answer these questions. What questions would you put on that list? Ask them who their science advisor would be. Okay. So we don't have a science advisor anymore in the United States, and science is being kind of really eliminated from whether it's who climate. Used to be the, who was the last science advisor? So our last science advisor was John Holdren. He's at Harvard now. But if you look at the arms control agreements and, and issues on climate, we've always relied on our key advisors with deep scientific knowledge, not to dictate the direction we go. These are political problems, but to inform them. And so I think it's absolutely fair to ask the candidates, well, who are you considering to be? Mm-hmm. Your science advisor. Your science advisor, yeah. your cabinet in general. But I'd be very, you know, I would be, in, you know, who are they thinking of? But what else would you want to know? And, and so that's a key question. Yep. And you said, I, I need to know positions on X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So, I mean, this was is going to be a really hard one for them to answer. And you could see this in the Democratic debates. But we've walked away for, from the Iran deal it's unlikely that we can get it back at this point. So how do you start again with Iran? Mm-hmm. Iran is clearly moving now towards rethinking, starting up their nuclear program. So what does that look like? Okay. What about climate change? On climate change, how would you direct the American government and the private sector to be investing in terms of new technologies needed around climate change? Not just do you believe in climate change, but what are what are you going to do? What's your first few? What's your plan? Mm-hmm. How are we going to invest? The United States, this is true globally, but the United States is f- facing a massive energy transformation that's going to be huge winners and losers. How do we do this so we can move forward as a country without just ripping up our... In- We're not going to do it by ripping up all of our infrastructure. So how are we going to get there? My favorite question, because I find it a fascinating question, is how do you think about nuclear power? Mm. For Democrats, this is really hard. The Democratic base is not pro-nuclear power for the most part. Certainly on the left, it's it, it's it's just viewed as really evil. Well, it's hard for me to see how you get a true energy transformation without nuclear power. So asking the candidates how they're going to get there is something that I find really fascinating. I'd love to hear more of. And then for Republicans, we're not having this discussion, but they're a lot more comfortable with nuclear power, but they're also comfortable with drill, baby, drill. So we're not moving forward with a kind of coal future the way it's currently configured. And we do need to uh, find ways to keep some of the the carbon in the ground. So how are they going to do it on their side? That's a conversation they're not having. But it's a really important conversation to have Mm -hmm. about what's our carbon future. Is there ever a time that you could see that you could retire the clock, or is it we that it will never be retired because the genie's out of the bottle? Well, after so after it's a great question. After the Cold War in 1991, we had moved it back to 17 minutes to midnight, and we would have loved to have kept moving it back and up further. I think of these issues kind of like crime; they never or poverty. It never goes away, but it can be less horrific or or more horrific. To that, there's probably always going to be a clock, but uh, a doomsday clock, but 
it wouldn't be that interesting if we were moving it from 17 minutes to 19 minutes to 20 minutes to 25. Got I mean, it. maybe it would be. Maybe there's a way we can, you know, that would be really exciting that it's just getting better and better. So I shouldn't say it wouldn't be as exciting. Maybe it would be. We just haven't, we haven't been there. So 2020 is a fascinating year. It's the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. It's the 50th anniversary of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which underpins all treaties. It's the 75th anniversary of the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's the 75th anniversary of the UN. It's the 75th anniversary of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists because we're responding to those global issues. And so we've been through this before, and we have this opportunity to chart a different history for the next 75 years. And we're in a pretty precarious place. But I do think that this anniversary year is, is a moment where we can actually make a difference. And the silver lining in this kind of scary moment that we're in is that people are noticing and they're getting more engaged. And they want to have conversations right. like this. And thank you for inviting me to talk about it. Absolutely. Because I think it's you know this moment where we can affect change. It's just... It's going to take a long time, but now's the time to start. Big Brains is a production of the U Chicago Podcast Network. If you like what you heard, please give us a review and a rating. Our show is hosted by Paul M. Rand and produced by me, Matt Hodap. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.